Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us at our study here today. Also want to welcome our friends in Arco, Idaho, at the Community Baptist Church. We are so glad that you are joining us for this study, as well as the hangar in Montana. I had to laugh. Uh, You get different things when you get to different regions of the country with our different campuses, different places. I call up Mary Todd, who's our campus pastor in Montana. Called her this past week, and I said, Mary, did I catch you in an okay time. She goes, oh, it's, it's, it's fine. She says, I'm just learning how to cut, cut the head off of a rooster. That's what I'm doing. So I interrupted her cutting the head off of a rooster. I don't think that's ever happened to me here with our, uh, you know, with our pastors here at our campus here. And so she was just covered with blood of a rooster. And she said, I'll take your call just a second and I'll finish cutting the head off of a rooster. So that's what's going on in Montana while we're here in the greater Los Angeles area. We're continuing our fall series entitled uh, Mythbusters, Debunking the Myths of Contemporary Culture. And now we got a tough one this morning. And that is the cultural myth that the unborn aren't people. And I want to be so sensitive on this. Please pray for me, and I'm praying for you that we will be sensitive together as we deal with this subject. Uh, Studies show that one out of four Americans are impacted by abortion in some way, either have had an abortion or have encouraged somebody else to do it or have had somebody in their family or in their circle of close friends. And uh, so I want to be so sensitive. And like we always pray, week by week, this is a theme of our church, speaking the truth in love. That's a purpose church theme that we have to, we want to speak the truth boldly, but we always want to do it like Jesus did, with gentleness and kindness and humility and graciousness and do it in love. And so would you pray for me that I would be able to balance truth and love as we approach this issue? And like I always say, if you ever sense imbalance, that's not Jesus speaking, that's Glenn speaking, and forget about it. Listen to the voice of Jesus. Don't listen to the voice of Glenn Gunderson. If you, if you sense in this message or any message where the truth is perfectly blended with love, that's the voice of Jesus. Listen to that voice. But if you ever sense me overemphasizing the truth and doing it without love, that's not Jesus. That's Glenn. If you ever sense me shirking back from telling the truth because of so-called love, because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or something like that, and so I sugarcoat the truth, that's not, that's not Jesus either. That's Glenn. Forget about that. Listen to it when it's truth blended with love because that's the voice of Jesus. Here's a theme verse for our church, and it's Ephesians 4, verse 15. Why don't we read it out loud together? Together? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Also, if you feel condemnation this morning, that's, that's not Jesus either. That, that's me. Don't listen to that one. But if you feel conviction, which leads you to repentance, which leads you to seek forgiveness and healing, that's the voice of Jesus. 1 John 1, verse 9. Why don't we read this one out loud together as well? 1 John 1, 9. Out loud together. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then if you feel uh, godly Holy Spirit conviction, seek healing in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, with that in mind, 
what is the myth that we're dealing with? And I want to share some quotes with you. And these are not me cherry-picking crazy extremists on the fringe of American society. This is mainstream American thought. These are people that are in leadership positions of influence within our country. Sam Harris is probably one of the best-known atheists within our country. Uh, He wrote in his book, The End of Faith, Many of us consider human fetuses in the first trimester to be more or less like rabbits. Uh, Steven Pinker, who's a professor at Harvard University. Boy, what could be more mainstream than that? A professor at one of our finest schools. He wrote in the New York Times, a capacity for neonaticide, that is the taking of the life of children, is built into the biological design of parental emotions. If a newborn child is sickly or if its survival is not promising, the parents should cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter or try again later on. The problem with homo sapiens may not be that we have too little morality. The problem may be that we have too much. Uh, James Rachel wrote in his book, Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism. And in this section of the book, he's defending Darwinistic, uh, Darwinian implications for how we treat uh, mentally disabled people. He writes, the natural conclusion, according to the doctrine that we are considering Darwinism, would be that their status is that of mere animals. And perhaps we should go on to conclude that they may be used as non-human animals are used, perhaps as laboratory subjects or as food. Uh, Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. writes, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Now, this goes on the older front as well. Uh, not just on the younger. Uh, In an article entitled, Should Americans Have a Duty to Die at 75? Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a doctor, a physician, uh, he is one of the great influencers in the American healthcare system. Today, he wrote, 75 is a pretty good age to aim to stop. Uh, uh, There was a ton of people at 8.30 service. How many of you are 75 or older? Let me see your hands. How many of you felt like stopping at 75, you know? You got Morris Yoakum. He's a 91-year-old retired pastor. He's on the second row. He's just getting going, I'm telling you, baby. He didn't want to stop uh, 16 years ago. And so there is this thing building within society that as long as you are in your prime, like post-birth to the age of 75, you are worthwhile. But if you're outside those parameters, you're taking up space. Uh, You're taking up food. You're taking up air. And maybe we need to deal with that. Now, where does our recoiling come from with those statements? Because thousands of years before, you know, in B.C., before Jesus, those statements would not have been that radical. There wouldn't be something within us that goes, oh, I don't know if I buy into that. Where does it come from? Ben Wicker writes, the laws against abortion and infanticide in the West are only intelligible as a result of its Christianization and The repeal of those same laws is only intelligible in light of its de-Christianization. That is, after Jesus, salt and light, his followers going into the world, we began to have that ethic. But as that influence diminishes in any culture or society, it becomes more palatable to us. Uh, Colleen Hackett uh, writes this, Colleen Hackett. 
Two minutes after the doctor showed us on ultrasound the three separate sacks containing our future children, he turned on the light in his office, told me to sit up, and then said, Colleen, you'll be 40 years old when you deliver. I suggest that you seriously consider selective reduction. He said it as calmly as if he thought I ought to purchase a Honda car. He was talking about killing one of our children. He knew the pain we had been through losing our daughter and we're still going through. He knew we were financially able to support three more children. He knew I was in excellent health and had no problems in past pregnancies. Yet he stood before me and continued to say, it's really quite simple. We just abort the child that is most easily accessible. That would be baby A. Selective reduction, abortion, murder, it's all the same. Our society views it with such commonness that it's sickening. We paid $30,000 to have these three boys, and our insurance wouldn't cover a dime. But had I decided to have an abortion, it would have paid for the whole procedure and probably sent me a dozen roses. Baby A is now our son, Sean Michael. He's gorgeous and full of life. Every time I hold him in my arms, I think that he would have been the one who was most easily accessible. He's the one we would have lost had I not stood firm in my convictions. Um, Chuck Colson writes in an article entitled, Why Max Deserves a Life. Sit in grandpa's chair. The laughing voice rises from my office chair as Max bounces up and down. Max is my six-year-old grandson, and his visits are a whirl of McDonald's, Happy Meals, and rambunctious splashes in the pool. When strangers see Max for the first time, they're immediately drawn to the blonde, tousled, hired youngster. But in a few moments, they also notice that Max is different. You see, Max is autistic. And today, kids not very different from Max are being targeted for elimination. Prenatal testing has become so sophisticated that doctors can now identify many disabilities before birth. But since most have no cure, the only way to, quote, prevent the disability is to prevent the baby's birth. Thus, abortion is bringing back eugenics, the idea of weeding out defectives and upgrading our genetic stock. Uh, this is what Adolf Hitler proposed to do. This is what Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood, she was a believer in eugenics. That is, that you use uh, family planning to reduce the defectives and to upgrade our genetic stock. Consider in 1990, Jocelyn Elders said that abortion, quote, has had an important and positive public health effect by reducing the number of children afflicted with severe defects. Here was a public health official. She eventually became Surgeon General, the top medical position in the United States, praising, quote, the eugenic utility of abortion, notes Tucker Carlson in the Weekly Standard. Abortion is cast not merely as a private choice, but also as a way to improve the species. Next page of your study outline. Why is the DNA of Christ followers uh, so pro-life? Well, because Christians have a history of being concerned for the defenseless of society. Uh, prior to Jesus, children were disposable objects. Uh, historian George Grant writes, according to the centuries-old tradition of paterfamilias, the birth of a Roman was not a biological fact. Infants were received into the world only as the family willed. A Roman did not have a child, he took a child. Immediately after birthing, if the family decided not to raise the child, he was simply abandoned. There were special high places or walls where the newborn was taken and exposed to die. What changed all that? What, what changed that? 
Well, Jesus is the one that changed it. Matthew 19, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Well, they were just simply mirroring the the attitude of the culture around them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Now, it's interesting, we'll see this in a minute, that this word for children, brephos, the Greek word, is the same all the way from an unborn child all the way through a teenager or a young adult. It's the same word. There is no different word for unborn and afterborn in the Greek that the New Testament was written to or the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in. It's one and the same. And the same word used here is the exact same Greek word that was used for Jesus before he was born and John the Baptist before he was born. Jesus said, let the brephos, the little children, come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. James Kennedy, uh, who was uh, my pastor growing up, was Kennedy Smart, and his best friend was James Kennedy. James Kennedy writes, through his church, ultimately, Jesus brought an end to infanticide. The influence of Christ brought value to human life and infanticide was outlawed. It lost favor with the Christian population as an outrageous crime. Christian influence in the Roman Empire helped to enshrine in law Christian principles of the sacredness of human life. Sherwood Wirt writes, many permanent legal reforms were set in motion by emperors Constantine and Justinian that can be laid to the influence of Christianity. Licentious and cruel sports were checked. New legislation was ordered to protect the slave, the prisoner, the mutilated man, the outcast woman. Children were granted important legal rights. Infant exposure was abolished. Women were raised from a status of degradation to that of legal protection. Hospitals and orphanages were created to take care of children who had been abandoned. Personal feuds and private wars were put under restraint. Branding of slaves was halted. Uh, The Justinian Code goes like this. Those who expose children, possibly hoping they would die, and those who use the potions of the abortionist are subject to the full penalty of the law, both civil and ecclesiastical, for murder. Should exposure occur, the finder of the child is to see that he is baptized and that he's treated with Christian care and compassion. They may then be adopted according to the Bible, even as we ourselves have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. Isn't that a great line? And we're going to study that more tonight. Kimberly and I are going to lead us more in in, in studying that here this evening. Now, I want you to know that I understand that this is a very complex and debated issue within our American culture. And and I I know I'm giving it somewhat of a superficial treatment here this morning for a more in-depth treatment. There's a book I'd love to recommend to you called Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. And it's written by Randy Alcorn. You may want to write that name down. Maybe we'll put it on our website uh, connected with this message. His last name is Alcorn, A-L-C-O-R-N. Randy Alcorn. And this is just a phenomenal book. It goes almost line by line in the debate between pro-choice and pro-life. Just a phenomenal book, almost like an encyclopedia, pro-life answers to pro-choice arguments. And I'd like to highly recommend that to you. But you know, let's just deal with it 
at a bumper sticker level here uh, for the next few minutes, okay? Uh, I love bumper stickers. I will probably ram into somebody someday trying to read their bumper sticker. If you ever hear that, oh yeah, Glenn lost his life on the 10 freeway, you know, tailing too closely. Well, I was probably trying to read a bumper sticker for a sermon illustration. And at any rate, there's one I saw just a few days ago. And on one side it said, live vegan. And I have absolutely no problem with that. Uh, I, I, I think it's great um, uh, when Christians, by conviction or otherwise, for health or, or for other convictions, choose to be vegetarian or to live vegan. I myself am, am not vegetarian or vegan, but I admire those who are. I have a new son-in-law who's vegetarian, and I uh, admire it greatly. I, I tell him I'm an errantarian. His name is Aaron, because I'm only vegetarian when I'm with him. Then I uh, go vegetarian. Uh, so when they're over for Sunday lunch or whatever, then I'll, I'll go vegetarian some of the time. But at any rate, uh, I have no problem with that. But here's my problem with the bumper sticker that was on the other side of the back of the car. It said, a pork chop stops a beating heart. And I had a little cute picture of a pig. I got a problem with that. Because first of all, what they're doing is they're mocking the pro-life bumper sticker, abortion stops a beating heart. And they're creating moral equivalency between a pig and an unborn child, which leads to the myth that we've been talking about, that the unborn aren't people. Here's another one you've seen for years, pro-child, pro-choice. Kimberly, in my anecdotal experience and research to back this up, shows that that is utterly untrue. That the more uh, pro-choice you are, the more pro-child you are. We have found the exact opposite to be true. That the churches and organizations that we know of, the more pro-life they are, the more pro-child they are. And the more pro-choice they are, the less pro-child they are. For example, uh, I've never done a study of this, but I can almost guarantee you that if you took the average uh, budget, children's and youth ministry, the portion of it that's devoted to children and youth in the average pro-life church and compared to a pro-choice church, I guarantee you, you will find the children's and youth budget multiple times bigger in the pro-life churches across America than you are in pro-choice churches or organizations. It was said that after Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion, that it would help to reduce the rate of child abuse. The exact opposite has happened. The rate of child abuse in America has skyrocketed since Roe versus Wade. And I think that makes perfect sense because the less respect we have for the sacredness of life before birth leads us to respect life less after birth. And the more we respect it before birth, the more we'll respect it after life, after birth uh, as well. Here's another one. If you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. And I have to admit, that, that, that makes some sense. There's a, a libertarian streak in us. There's an American streak in us that says, yeah, that makes sense. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. Don't put your nose in my business, and I won't put my nose in your business. Here's the problem. That argumentation would have also worked perfectly, not on the bumper sticker of a car in 2014, but also on a bumper sticker on the back of your wagon in 1857. Um, this was the argumentation used by the slave owners prior to the Civil War. You've seen the other bumper sticker, keep your laws off my body. Well, a slave owner in the mid-1800s would have easily had a bumper sticker that says, keep your laws off my property. Slaves are my property. You keep your nose in its business, and I'll keep my nose in my business, and we'll get along just fine. But the Christian abolitionists, followers of Jesus, took the little one-chapter book of Philemon, 
that declares that slaves are fully human, equal in Christ, and said, you know what, that just doesn't, that doesn't work. And so we actually went to a war about it within our nation. You see, the whole issue is, is someone human or not? And you have those nauseating laws and amendments and compromises, they were called, from the early 1800s, like the three-fifths compromise and others, where they would say that a slave was worth three-fifths of a human being, and it makes you sick to your stomach to even think of those things today. And yet, when people thought they were less than human, it made it easy to come up with one position. When you thought they were fully human, you believed that, then you came up with a different position. And the same thing is true with this debate here today. Um, The choice ends when it involves another human life. Choice ends when it involves another human life. And that was true of slavery 150 years ago. It's true in this issue today. Uh, People were worried back in 1857 about the economic impact. What's going to happen if we just free all the slaves? And the same thing is true. What are we going to happen if we just give all these children life? Do you know that for many years, the number of abortions has been almost equal to the number of Americans seeking to adopt a child? It has been very, very close for a number of years. We believe that things would work out. God would work it out. But even if he doesn't, it's the right thing to believe. Uh, Number three, uh, people say, well, it's going to lead to disunity. Why don't you, uh, Christ followers, just leave well enough alone and keep your nose out of my business because this is leading to disunity within our country. Well, it led to disunity with regard to slavery as well. But it led to the Civil War. But would anybody deny that it was absolutely worth it in the end? Because it was the right thing. Why do we believe that life begins at at, at conception? Remember we said a couple weeks ago with the whole uh, myth that Christians are anti-science, we said that there are two great places of revelation. One is what we call general revelation, uh, science and common sense. God gave us science, God gave us common sense, and that's what we call general revelation. But then we have what's called specific revelation, and that is in the form of Jesus, God's Son, and His Word, uh, the Bible. And so first of all, let's talk about uh, science and common sense in this issue. C. Everett Koop, who was the United States Surgeon General, writes, protection of the life of the mother as an excuse for an abortion is a smokescreen. In my 36 years of pediatric surgery, I have never known of even one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. If toward the end of the pregnancy, complications arise that threatens the mother's health, the doctor will either induce labor or perform a cesarean section. His intention is to save the life of both the mother and the baby. The baby's life is never willfully destroyed because the mother's life is in danger. He says in 36 years of pediatric surgery, he's never known of even one instance where he had to choose between the two. Uh, Along with that in the medical field, I have a list here of 56 physical and psychological effects uh, of abortion on people. It's it's counterintuitive. It's counter common sense. It it leaves woundedness. It leaves brokenness behind. 56 physical, emotional, and psychological negative effects. Common sense dictates it just can't be uh, something that's meant to be. I have this quote by Nancy Verrier, and she is not a follower of Christ, and she's not pro-life. She's pro-choice. This is a pro-choice writer, but she wrote a book called Primal Wound, and here's what she says. 
The belief that the being within the pregnant woman is indeed human life from the moment of conception has less to do with religion than with logic. What can the organism be if it's not a human being in its earliest stage of development? Before a woman seeks an abortion, she must first be pregnant. To be pregnant means to be, quote, with child. Yet some pro-choice advocates make having an abortion sound like removing some appendage, some unnecessary part of the woman's own body. One woman was told to think of it as if she were having her appendix removed. The zygote or fetus is a separate entity which is attached to the woman's body, but is not part of her body. It is a separate being, and it is alive. We also find it within God's specific revolution, revelation within his word. Now, one passage that has been used to uh, justify uh, seeing the, the preborn child as not fully human is Exodus chapter 21. It's an obscure Old Testament passage where it says if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely. Now the great weight of Hebrew scholarship says this is the proper translation of this passage. There is a distant possibility, okay, very much a secondary consideration that it could mean to have a miscarriage. But the great weight of Hebrew scholarship in the Old Testament says that the translation that we have in the New International Version and other translations is correct. She gives birth prematurely. But there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Now, contrary to this being something that justifies a different view towards the unborn, it actually confirms it. But if there is serious injury, either to the pre-born child, the child uh, prematurely born, or to the mother, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and, and so it goes on. And, and, and far from being something that waters it down, it actually strengthens the case. Um, my old seminary professor that I had, John Jefferson Davis, writes, far from justifying permissive abortion, it in fact grants the unborn child a status in the eyes of the law equal to the mother's. Meredith Klein, who was another of my Old Testament professors in seminary, says, the most significant thing about abortion legislation in biblical law is that there is none. It was so unthinkable that an Israelite woman would desire an abortion that there was no need to mention this offense in the criminal code. Uh, this Hebrew word that is used for the unborn child here is yaled, which means young children. But it also applies to teens and even young adults. The same Hebrew word for an unborn child is used all the way through young adulthood. It's all the same. The Israelites in the Hebrew uh, did not have or need a separate word for unborn children. They were just like any other child, simply younger. That's why David writes in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Jeremiah 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet of the nations. 
moving to the New Testament in Matthew 1. But after he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then when Mary, with Jesus only uh, within her, possibly only 10 days from conception, when Mary walks into the presence of Elizabeth, who is now farther along pregnant with John the Baptist, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This Greek word, brephos, that is translated here for the preborn baby is exactly the same word used when Jesus blessed the children that were brought to him. The same thing, all the same within the eyes of Scripture, within the eyes of God. So what do we do as a result of this? We speak the truth, but we always do it in love. Uh, If we've done wrong, we ask for God's forgiveness, and we find healing in Jesus. And we make a renewed commitment from this moment forward to do the right thing and to encourage each other to do the right thing. We want to be a church where we encourage each other to do the right thing. Melody Green writes, Too many times when an unwed mother does make the right choice, she's shunned and made to feel dirty by the church. In an attempt to discourage promiscuity by penalizing the unwed mother, we have actually encouraged her to take the so-called easy way out rather than endure the social stigma and persecution by those who claim to love Jesus she heads off for the friendly abortion clinic. How do you think Jesus would treat those who, although they've made a serious mistake, were now willing to bear the shame, whispering, and humiliation to now do the right thing? Can we do any less than he would do? And all God's family said, amen. Hey, we're gonna share the Lord's Supper now. Everybody's welcome. You just need to know that you're a follower of Jesus. You say, Glenn, I'm not sure if I've taken that step or if I'd like to take that step today, how would I go about doing it? Right next to where you just were on the study outline, if you just, on that that second page of the study outline, if you just pop up here to the right, you'll see the steps the Bible says to be a follower of Jesus Christ and a little suggested prayer. And if you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray that prayer today, this could be your day November 2nd, 2014, or, or if you're watching now in Montana or in Idaho, uh, later on in the month of, of November, um, if you're uh, with us there in Idaho, it's November 9th and, and November 16th if you're in Montana. This could be your day. This could be your moment. If you're watching online or listening later on on podcast or, uh, or watching online, um, this could be your moment. It's not by accident that you're hearing this. And we invite you to pray a simple prayer, opening your heart to receive Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's take just a moment to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.